Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, this is an episode that'll go out on Tuesday. So with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? It's going well. How's your weekend? Well, I want to complain to you about yeah. my weekend, actually. All because, right, go ahead. Because, so Bradley and I, what we do is we, we exchange texts over the weekend. And we, you know, Bradley usually has like a half dozen things on his mind. Usually, as I mean, if you listen to the podcast, you know, like we talk about a lot of different things. So I don't get a text from Bradley. Usually I hear from him Saturday and he'll say like, I want to talk about this, this and this. I didn't get a text like that. So I just later yesterday, I texted him. I said, hey, um, he's like, I don't really have anything. And I gave him a list. And he's like, he's like, let's just talk about this book I read. Do you have time to read it? This was yesterday. (laughs) It's a very fast book. (laughs) It was a fast book. But also, it's a fast book for Bradley. So I'm not like the kind of reader that Bradley's. I did read it. I did read it. We're going to talk about it. That's what the, why don't you talk about the book? But I just want you to know, when you ask how my weekend was. Well, but I only, you, that was only from like Sunday afternoon on. Yeah, but then so from it, Friday but night to Sunday afternoon. that's all I remember is like Sunday afternoon. I was like, oh, shit, I got to right, read this but whole But what you're book. remembering is all of this interesting information summarizing ethical and philosophical we'll theory. Let's talk about the, the book. Talk about the book because that's what we're going to. So, so the book It's going to be the whole frame of the discussion, yeah. this book. So, so the book is called, I think, How to Be Perfect. It's by a guy named Michael Scher. The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question yeah. is the subtitle. And uh, where you might know him is he's a TV writer and producer. So he made... The Good Place, which was sort of the, the genesis for this book. Did you see The Good Place? I did. Really? I liked it quite a bit. How do you have time to read and watch TV shows? I watched The Good Place for my kids. Okay. Um, and you and Parks and Rec, your kids Parks love, and Rec, right? Yeah. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He wrote for The Office. He wrote for Saturday Night Live. Right. He That's pretty much One or two other shows. Pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, very, very accomplished. And because of all of the research he had to do in creating The Good Place, I think he basically developed a pretty solid understanding of kind of moral philosophy over the you know past twenty four hundred years he says or so <laughs> so and he sums it up I think very helpfully in like two hundred and fifty pages and the truth is I don't have the patience or discipline or maybe even intelligence to get through Kant in the original text but I certainly can get through Michael Scherer's you know dumbed down version of Kant <laughs> what did he say about Kant rigid dude yeah yeah <laughs> quite rigid um, um, Kant okay, so doesn't come off that wait, great stop in this book. stop stop I'm going to ask you a question. What made you read this book? Like, how did you hear about it? Who recommended it to you? What? How did it uh, pop up? On he your was on a podcast. He was on the Bill Simmons podcast. Okay. Not and Simmons didn't even really ask him that much about the book. Do you think Simmons had read the book? No, right. Probably not. Um, they talked about like baseball and stuff, but uh, which was also good for me. But um, there's a little baseball yeah, in the in the book. But I was aware of who. Other oh, Red Sox fans too. They have that. Yeah, yeah, I was aware of who he was because of all these shows he made. So I kind of already admired him. I don't mm-hmm. know him, but. And then that this kind of book's up right up my alley, right? Really? Yeah, I love this shit. Like pop psychology. Like my therapist had to tell me to instruct me to stop reading pop psychology books. I would come in to, to session with all these theses. She's like, "You got to stop reading these books." <laughs> so um, this was a little different. Did, did, he, feel, did he feel threatened? Like, like she? She? Um, sorry. No, I think she just felt like I, I was just like engaging in things that were stupid and, and there was a better that, that in fact the reason I read Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning was I kind of wanted to say to her alright hotshot how about this right you know <laughs> it's hard being your therapist yeah but it is hard being my therapist <laughs> I pay really I get the invoice and it's paid like in 10 minutes really do you pay double sometimes just sometimes so? just for the hell of it yeah, yeah. Um, okay so you, 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 you heard it on a podcast yep. with Bill Simmons and you're like okay I'm going to read that book yep. you just popped it up you read it how long how long did it take you a couple hours five hours Really? Six hours, four hours. Okay. That's about the same amount of time it took me to read Yeah. I mean, I was out for dinner Saturday night, uh, Friday night. I was supposed to go to a dinner and a concert with a friend. He had a last-minute mishap. 
I ended up having dinner by myself because I was already at the restaurant when the mishap had occurred. So I read throughout dinner. And did you go to the concert? I did. Uh, okay. But then my uh, my friend Josh, I say, joined me for that. Oh, so you he happens to live. It was at the Beacon. Josh lived a few blocks from the Beacon. He was available. I actually uh, so enjoy we going to concerts by myself. I mean, it's, I would have. I was going to go either way at that point. Once and that was, was Eddie Vedder. It was Eddie Vedder. Who? How, you how know, good a show was it? I was less. I enjoyed myself. I had a good time. I hadn't been to a concert probably since right. COVID. Right. Um, it's nice. With all that said, there wasn't a single song he played that was his music. That was better than a single Pearl Jam song that, or that yeah, I knew, right? Yeah, problem. That, no, that's I don't know. Every, and problem, by the way, right? it's even possible he played one or two Pearl Jam songs that I wasn't aware of. Now, he closed with um, Neil Young, I think, you know, in, um, you know, what's it called? What's the big Neil Young hit? Rockin' in the Free World. Yeah, Rockin' in the Free World, which I think was a Spotify shout-out type thing, although he didn't address it, but I think that's what it was. Yeah. And then the final one, which was fascinating, was he, Purple Rain. Really? Which was just not, I, I but it not, worked. I might not want to hear but Eddie Vedder play a Purple it, Rain. It worked. It did? And I guess the question I asked Josh was, because keep on, the Beacon was a crowd of people from the age of probably 42 to 58 mainly, white, okay. upper middle class people by a very white crowd. Oh, really? So, Surprising. Yeah. <laughs> so the question I asked Josh was, what percentage of people here do you think knew every word to Purple Rain is 100% fair to say? Mm-hmm. And he said 90. And I said, Okay. Is it fair to say the next 10% knew the song, they just didn't know every other word? And he said, yes. you agree with that? Um, yeah. I mean, more or less. Were you, did you not, not agree? I, no, no. I, I know the words quite well. Um, no, no, no. But it was kind of funny. that. I, like, mean, I wouldn't know the words like if you asked it was me to very, sing it right now. I just now, thought it was very clever of Eddie Vedder. They did something that on one hand felt very unexpected. Yeah. On the other hand, it was actually perfectly suitable for that crowd. Did you, did you read the Eddie Vedder interview in the New York Times? Oh, no, you didn't. Because you don't read the New York Times. Uh, no. It's and in fact, ba- Howard even sent it to me. And, uh, oh, right. And you and still I, refused. I still didn't read it. Yeah. Right. Well, you probably, they've locked you out anyway, haven't they? I mean, probably. Probably, yeah. It's, it's, I, it's funny. I can't stand Eddie Vedder's music. I don't like Pearl Jam, but I do think Eddie Vedder's a pretty, a pretty interesting guy and a very thoughtful guy. So I have that weird, I can't stand that voice. I, I never could, like, from the first yeah. moment I heard it. I like it because you, you can also, song, oh because you can imitate it easily. Yeah. It's you just, know? It just, uh, it's like a good, he's like I, a good karaoke band. <laughs> he's like a good karaoke band. <laughs> That's meant as a compliment. Yeah. Um, okay. So the book. We got to circle back to the right, book. Right, right. How to be perfect—the correct answer to every moral question. So, in five hours, now tell me which part of the book. So, why don't you describe a little bit the book so people understand it? Because yeah, so what, what the book tries to do is take these broad philosophical schools of thought and then kind of explain them and then adapt them into the context of today's life. So ultimately, he kind of really covers three different groups. So there's utilitarianism, which is Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. Well, it starts with Aristotle. Oh, yeah, but I'll, I'll okay. All right. So utilitarianism, which really means you do, all of your actions should be driven by what creates the greatest good. Right. That's it. That right. should determine every single thing you do. Mm-hmm. Then there's Kantianism, which effectively to me, it, it, deontology, is that how you pronounce it? Yes, I think so. Uh, it, is the school of thought. It, it's the study of obligations. And I, the way I interpret it was it's all process-based, which is you have to do things for the right reason. The outcome doesn't even matter. It's just it's just your intention. Right, and there has to be in. a kind of like like a like in a sort of eternal rightness to what you're doing. Isn't yeah. that right? It's kind of, and then the third is Aristotle. I guess well, that was the first one he talked about, um, which is kind of virtue ethics, which is the idea of it's a balance. So 
Um, you should know yourself well. You should try to do the most good that you can. But anything in excess is just as harmful as not doing it at all. And that could be an excess of bad things or good things, right? Um, and which I, I found to be very uh, appealing as a philosophy. And then he did things like he took, I thought the best example in the book was the shopping cart in the supermarket oh, really? parking lot. I, I really like that one. Because I feel like I have things like that all the time that I worry about. Um, so but don't, don't you think if you worry about it, you just do it? Like this, the point is, if, if it even occurs to you to do it, don't you just do it? Generally speaking, but I'll, I'll, I'll give well, you, yeah, okay. Why don't we explain let me, let me what it actually go, was? So, so, yeah. so the, like, the, the question was, cart? and look, this guy lives in LA, so it's not so much of a New York problem. Right. But um, We just shoplift here in New York. Instacart. <laughs> no, you don't do Instacart. We do. You do? They eatily Whole Foods. You don't go to the grocery store? Fuck no. Really? I hate it. Well, one, I have OCD, so I don't like a lot of the things. Like, it freaks me out. And two, I find it highly unpleasant. Really? Why would I? Look, one of the benefits, so one of the benefits of having made a lot of money is I get to give it away and feel good about myself. But one benefit is <laughs> I like the way you say someone that. else can do shopping for me, and then I can tip them a lot of money and feel good about myself yet again. Oh, my God. But so the it's reality win, is win, 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 win. I don't want to go to the supermarket. I don't do my own laundry either. Right. I justify not doing basically anything that I don't enjoy doing as a cost-benefit analysis. See, that's interesting. So is and there any, I just overpay okay, okay, Let me ask you a question then. Is there anything you in, that you do as a chore which you easily could pay someone and you don't necessarily love doing it, but it makes you feel like a complete human? Because I would put laundry in that. I don't actually do my own laundry anymore, but I did for a long uh, time. When we're upstate, there's like a little circuit of actually food shopping that I was a couple places and I like them and there's no like price tags that freak me out with the OCD stuff. And I kind of enjoy on a Saturday morning getting out of the house. Right. You know, listening to some podcasts, driving around a little bit. Right. Um, I kind of enjoy the process, right? Okay. Um, but but overall, I try to be. You can't really do Instagram upstate, right? You can do Instagram, but you can't do Instacart. Oh, oh, Instagram, of course. Yes, <laughs> you can't do Instacart. You, know, you can't do Instagram upstate yes. in New York. They've outlawed it. Um, so yeah, but I'll give you. So, so the shopping cart example is. You're in the supermarket. You you roll your cart out to your car. You put your groceries in the trunk. And then the question is, what do you do with the cart? Right. right? Do you bring it back to the very front? Is there some spot that you kind of put it in? Do you just leave it there? And while the obvious answer is, well, you should bring it back to the right place, he then goes through lots of different schools of thought to like, well, what if someone's job is to remove all the carts from the parking lot? And because you and everyone instead did it yourself, that person gets fired, right? right? Or all these different permutations, which effectively leaves you to conclude, you know, there's probably a right answer to a lot of this stuff, but it's a personal question. Or let me give you an easier example in my life. You may have this, which is we travel a lot, and I like to get the luggage cart. So going in, going out, <laughs> I'm a luggage cart guy, right? And God, I never use a luggage cart. I always use cart. it. Okay. And then the question you have is— a lot of, I try to minimize the luggage that my family uses. I'm always if like, I'm talking about myself, none. There's almost nothing. I just have right. a small bag and, and right. a minute out. But, but, yeah, like we're going to London next week, the four of us. That's going to be, I'm sure, a couple of— Duffel bags worth of stuff. Right, so you're you going to get the cart. Get the cart. And then, okay, I checked in at the counter. Now what do I do with the cart? Do I take it all the way back out to the front of the airport? Do I? And I sort of so struggle with that. one. There's no place, like no intermediate It's spot. not like a great spot. So what I end up off, sometimes I'll do the right thing to bring it all the way out. But so let's say it's really cold out and I'll go outside again. What I'll do is like I'll put it like kind of near the entrance in a you know, somewhat less busy spot. Right. Or <laughs> recycling. Right. So in my apartment, like most people at this point, we have two garbage bins. We have a regular trash bin. We have a recycling bin. I order a lot of takeout. Right. Cooking is another thing that I tend to pay other people to do for me. Um, generally speaking, you know, I'll wash out and put the plastic stuff in the recycling bin right. and the food in the, right. in the other bin. Right. But sometimes 
like the why like it's such uh, a mess. This is sounding bad, Brad. Or like there's like a bad. little container of like ketchup or mustard that I didn't even open. Right. And then it's like, oh, I gotta open it, wash out the whole thing, yep, you throw do. it away. But you don't. Sometimes I just stick it in the fridge and let somebody else deal with it. Oh, okay. There, and there then like um, six months later, I'm like, I guess I have to deal wow, with it because it's still sitting there. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I do it and sometimes I don't. Um, so anyway, the point is, I, I think whether it's things big or small, we all face these constant ethical dilemmas. And these different schools of thought are really designed to just help us think through um, how do I want to approach it. Right. Okay. So the part that resonated with me, in part because I live in New York City and rarely have the grocery cart problem. Right. And I also feel like I just always return you it. You like going to the supermarket? I do. I mean, I, I like I like figuring out what I need in my life and like doing it and feeling like a grown up. Yeah, I do. Okay. I mean, I don't I don't do it all the time, but I. I you know, on, on Instacart, you still pick the things you want. No, I know, but there's like a there. I like to think about what I'm doing, like when I'm doing more it. intentionality in your. Yeah, food I shopping. like to see the shit too. Like I don't want to like just order meat and then have it show yeah, up. See, like, I would rather take that hour and read. Yeah. No, I listen to a podcast or something. I do stuff, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the the audio. Do you watch Ozark? I, you know, I hear. I think we've discussed this before, but I only watch now. I've, I've decided I don't watch television shows. I only watch the first episode of TV shows. Sometimes I'll watch the first episode of a season, but I realize I hate TV shows. I don't like the kind of like. <laughs> that's like, remember that movie Metropolitan? You said, I don't read books, I just read literary criticism. <laughs> this is like, that's the equivalent of what you're saying. No, no. But, I, the reason is that, like, I think TV, I think TV shows are a trap. They're just, they're, they're just to get you to watch the next episode, and I hate that. I, I like movies. Huh. I've watch fewer and fewer movies and more TV shows. But the point is this. Darlene, who is right. this terrifying character in Ozark, okay. Harper was at the Whole Foods Union Square once and saw her in the produce section. Right. And her takeaway was she was very excited to see her um, and said she looked just as mean in real life as oh. she did on the TV show. Oh. So that was worthwhile. Yeah, right? yeah. So yeah, I almost wish I had been there for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that would have been cool. But I wasn't. Own. No, I was pretty good. So the, um, the Woody Allen section interested me in part because, um, well, for many reasons. One, um, uh, I thought the discussion of it was like it actually started off really well and, and he went into this detail, though I, I, I checked back just before. So the whole point was like, can you watch a Woody Allen movie now, given what we know about him? And yeah. and um, and for for Michael Schur himself, like he, he was a, a, not just a fan of Woody Allen, but like Woody Allen was sort of central to his whole the, how I mean, he became a he writer is a and professional comedy writer. So sure. Right. And but but I mean, not every professional. Com well, probably most professional comedy writers of Michael Schur's age and and background would be would be Woody Allen fans but but anyway hugely important to his development as a as a writer and as a comedic thinker or whatever um and now like well should you watch a movie you know like let's say as he says like you have a DVD that you've always had is it wrong to even watch it um now what was interesting to me about that question and he went through some different um uh different sort of views of it was that he never actually answered it he didn't and it's and, interesting and, and that annoyed the shit out of me oh uh, I don't really it didn't really bother me, really? but, but I, I noticed a couple things. One is, I think his point is there's moral absolutism, and on one hand, it, it, it can be a bright line way to live in certain rules. On the other hand, you can go to a rabbit hole of contradictions forever, yeah, right? Agreed, so, so, so for, for example, like I noticed, he must be from Boston, right? Because he mentioned the Red Sox and the Celtics. Isn't it funny that he sort of doesn't say? Yeah, even but he must he talks about but being what's a Red interesting Sox is fan? he's clearly a big sports fan, right? He never mentions the Patriots. And is it because they are a morally suspect team? And therefore, is his fandom... But then he fandom, should mention them, right? I don't know. But So I was thinking about this question. So recently... That would be lame if he, I, if he doesn't mention them because they're morally suspect. I, I, I guess I, I try to sort of think about how that question applied to me. Right. 
and I kind of came out in two ways. So one was he talked a lot about Chick Fil A, and how you know yeah, they're right. very anti gay rights and gay marriage. Do you uh, eat Chick Fil A? No. Have you ever eaten it? I never have. Okay. Now I have, have never, you had the opportunity and, and actively not done it because I've been like around. I've been like in places that have it, and I haven't like airports. I'm hungry, and I haven't right. gotten it. Right. right? Um, but more around that like. I try not to eat that much fast food or any fast food in the first place. Right. It's not good for you. I'm sure it does taste delicious, but um, it seems easy enough to avoid. Yeah, right? I, I think that's right. But but on the flip side, like in politics for sure, I mean, there's this terrible trend right now of people just sort of you know, generally nameless, faceless people on Twitter who have nothing to speak for of their own accomplishments, um, who just engage in this constant moral absolutism and say, well, if you did this, if you're associated with this one bad thing, then everything you do is terrible. And I don't think that works. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, we've been trying, I think as listeners this podcast know, to pass a lot of money to inc- for universal school meals in the federal spending bill. So in the original bill, Bob Adder bill, there was about $30 billion in there. We were lobbying to keep it in. Um, obviously, Manchin killed the whole bill. We've talked about this in the podcast before. Yeah. But uh, there's at least talk of um, reviving it in some form and much cheaper. So I've still been working with and Lisa Quigley, who runs our hunger stuff more than me, to, to ensure that we're in whatever that bill is. And I had kind of two examples the other day where I realized, oh, you know, uh, I think this is an acceptable moral structure, which is one – I met with Kirsten Cinema on Friday, okay. and uh, afterwards, uh, I offered to host a fundraiser for her. And Harper said, are you sure, you know, filibuster this, that? And I just said, she's for feeding hungry kids. In fact, she was a hungry kid. She worked in the school system. Like, fuck yeah. And then even more so, the chairman of the budget, Senate Budget Committee is Bernie Sanders. Right. I don't like Bernie. He's a self-righteous, arrogant, sort of do-nothing prick who, like, has <laughs> accomplished incredibly little in his life for the amount of attention he gets. Okay. He supports universal school meals. I maxed out to Bernie Sanders. Now, will somebody at some point in the future look at that and say, you know, attack me for it? I'm sure. And by the way, if there were any Republicans considering voting for school meals, I'd max out to them too. Maybe not Ted Cruz, but but pretty much all of them. <laughs> point being, you draw the line. Ted life Cruz. is just too complicated. Well, Harper would probably leave you if you like, if you Ted maxed Cruz, out would, Ted would, Cruz would be tough. Yeah. yeah, but but life, at least in the interconnected world we live in right now. You just can't be a moral absolutist. Like, um, okay, well, yeah. let me cut you off right there. Um, so, are you a Woody Allen fan? Mm, I've seen all the movies, and I, don't, I haven't seen them again. Okay, so it, like care. not watching his movies is like of no cost no sacrifice. To you. I, well, yeah, I mean, right now, if I one came on, I wouldn't not watch it because of morality. I'm just like, yo, I've seen bananas. What about Mel Gibson? You know, I've never. It's interesting. I have never been a huge Mel Gibson fan. You seen anyway. You're Living Dangerously? I've not seen that. Oh, that's a good movie. Um, but I have chosen to just say he's a bad guy because the anti-Semite. What's interesting is Phil Collins, who I was telling <laughs> Lyle was an anti-Semite. Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Then I went online and researched it, and apparently he's not. It's like all a misunderstanding. Really? And he never Phil said Collins anything. Phil Collins is a misunderstood? Yeah, yeah. He apparently never said anything anti-Semitic, and somehow it got like ascribed to him. And then There's a lot of negativity around about Phil Collins. It's weird because he doesn't seem like that bad a guy, but people seem to like... Just he hasn't come up yet, him. so I'm reading. The other book I started this weekend was the Bob Spitz biography of, of Led Zeppelin, and big rock and roll weekend for you. Yeah, and a lot of people come up in it. So like, you know, the usuals. Obviously, there's the Beatles and Rolling Stones comparisons constantly. Right. You know, the Who, Clapton, Jeff Beck, but even like Rod Stewart pop up in the book, right? Because it was just all these people on like 
Brighton and Birmingham and London who were like young, yeah. merging together to form bands and trying Golden it out, eye. right? It was Total incredible, yeah, right? Amazing. In fact, there's that great book, Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell, a novel that kind of captures that whole thing. Did you like that I book? I loved it. Oh, did Absolutely you? Absolutely loved I it. I love David Mitchell, and I, like, I don't know. I thought it was I a great book. I, didn't I thought like it was a great character. story. Oh, I, I liked all of them. He, he's a, the whole, Mitchell's a little weird. There's some magical realism. It's not totally straightforward fiction. So you have to sort of be okay with that. Oh, but I, I, I loved was. his previous, what, Cloud Atlas? Like, I loved that book. That's a great, um, that, that is a hard book that is worth getting through. Yeah, I agree. It's really amazing. I, anyway, Utopia Avenue is disappointing anyway, to me. Po- point being, uh, Collins did not come up at all. It has not come up all in the first 300 pages of that book. Really? Book, which means he's not apparently that consequential. Um, and maybe that means he's also not an anti-Semitic. Was he a little young? <laughs> He's a little younger than them, but not a lot. I mean, he's an old okay, dude. Okay, wait. At this now point. I want to. Since we're on the subject of rock and roll, yeah. I, and this is. I'm gonna. I'm gonna pick this out as 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 the thing that annoyed me about the book. The Zeppelin um, book or the Michael no, no, Scher book? No, I haven't read those. Uh, I read the the very long essay about the Zeppelin book in the New Yorker. Yeah. Um, but I have not read them. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't like. You don't read books. You just read literary criticism. No, no. I I do. I sometimes read books. I read this freaking book. But um, the. Um, I have an allergy to Led Zeppelin based on college. Like it was, it was the the fraternities that played like Misty Mountain Hop over and over and over. Bow, 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 I, so bow, I probably bow. had just, a just, similar reaction <laughs> and probably a twenty year break from Led Zeppelin right. as a result. And then in the last five to ten years, I kind of rediscovered like, this is really fucking good. Now there's still <laughs> I, I can't stand Stairway to Heaven. I'm not a huge Misty Mountain Hop fan. I like Tangerine. Either. That's a good. song. I like Tangerine. Yeah. I like Cashmere. I like Immigrant Song. I like When the Levees yeah. Break. So whole anyway, lot of love. You like whole lot of love. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. Okay. How do you not like that let, song? Let me go to let me go to my rock and roll point. So he he does this weird thing. The book does is, is ends pretty weakly. You know, I think it, it ends with like this like whole thing about apologies. And the weird thing is that he picks an apology to to highlight and to praise from Tom Petty. Now, what's so crazy about this? The apology's fine. I mean, it's just like you know, Tom Petty had made a concept album about the South that was literally based on like sort of plantation iconography and had like a big Confederate flag on it. And so obviously that was I mean even at the time it was criticized although I remember like it was all over MTV and I don't remember seeing a lot of criticism about it there um, but the the uh, uh, years later Petty expressed some remorse and apologized for it said well I grew up with a confederate flag and I just it was sort of normalized to me and I didn't understand how that would you know how that would look to other people and it was kind of crazy because, like, you know, Tom Petty's, like, in his 30s when he does this. Like, it, it, the idea that the Confederate flag is, like, like not an, a deeply offensive thing to, like, a lot of Americans, even in the 1980s, just seems, like, stupid. And, and people, in fact, at the time said but, it was but, stupid. Okay, but his— And, and, but the thing is, is that he minimizes it in the apology. So he, he just says, oh, I thought it was done. But, like, Tom Petty actually wore a coat on the tour that had a Confederate flag like knit into the inside of the coat, right? So it wasn't just like an incidental thing that they kind of used, which the apology makes it seem like, oh yeah, this was just kind of a dumb thing I did. It, it, it just as- Okay, the, but, but can't you, hold on. Here's the thing, uh, uh, let me just finish and yeah. then you can, it's not that like we should crucify Tom Petty over this. I or that Tom over, Petty. <laughs> okay, well then you'll, you'll have a chance to defend him in a second. But the idea of highlighting that apology as like the way to do it without going into what he's actually apologizing for and actually how how in how kind of intense and overbearing the use of that iconography was i just feel like it was like 
it was it was kind of like revisionist history. It's like, oh, he just used this once, and then he was like, okay. oh. Fair, fair. So I didn't know the context of right. it, and I am a, a petty fan. It just seemed lazy on the part of the writer to could, pick could, that. Could, as well, the, I think a few things. So one is I do think it is okay for people's views to evolve. Right, so I'm not. I'm not arguing so, that at all. So let's just say I, I get your your point, but let's say Petty instead had said, "Yeah, I believe this. I thought this. This was part of my heritage." And as I left Jacksonville, Florida, which I think or Gainesville, he's from one of those, yeah, and, and kind of moved to Good LA, you, and, and you know, kind of. Do you, saw, me, do you remember the name of his band before he became Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers? No, I think it was, was it Mud Crutch. I think it was. I have no idea. Anyway. Um, Maybe as he sort of not got out in the world more, his views evolved and changed. I think it's perfectly fine for people to say, you know, my views have evolved and changed. What, what I, where I'm skeptical of Michael Scher, and I've never met him, so okay. I don't know, right. is I worry a little bit that he's a reflexive progressive that is terrified to, like, <laughs> make anyone upset. Because if you look at his two examples, yeah. there were some Republican congressman who he said, this is a terrible example of an apology. And right. the person the, the like— The AOC thing where he yeah, said she's a Yeah, this guy insulted AOC, and then he's busy—he dissected this guy's apology to say it wasn't really an apology at all and it didn't even make any sense. And then Petty, someone renouncing Confederacy— he goes with so I'm a little skeptical of Cher. That just felt that too on the nose. I, as they would well, say I just kind of wonder: does Cher have the balls to tell AOC or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders you're wrong or I disagree with you? I don't know. I don't yeah. know. The, that would be my biggest fear about him: is he, he conflates um, progressivism with with, eth- with you know ethics and integrity, and mm-hmm. they're not the same thing. Well said, Bradley. Um, Okay, we were going to just mention or talk in the context of this, the the Washington Post article on, on the billionaire Leon Cooperman. Yeah. But I want to make sure before we do that that there's not something else about the book that you wanted. Here's, here's a question I have for you, sort of a generalized question. But was there anything in the book... You mentioned the, the shopping carts, but that but he goes through many different examples in his own life and other things that actually helped you with a problem you've had or wrestled with or, like, was there something specific? Well, here's the thing. So I would say... Um, I found the Aristotle part very, very helpful because I really struggle with that. So the part of the book where he talks about is sort of the, you know, I, I, I tend to think in very binary ways. And then I'll go down a rabbit hole. So he gives an example of like, oh, instead of buying this one thing for $30, I'll give it, or $5, I'll give it to buy malaria nets instead. And he's like, well, then I could also, though, instead of going out for dinner, I could, you know, cook something and donate that money. And then, you know, I could buy, drive a different car or live in a different house and so on. I kind of tend to go down those rabbit holes, too. Right. In fact, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but at the school where Hugo and my kids both happen to go, um, on the stairwell down to the basement, there was a sign that said, character is what you do when no one is watching. Right. And for, you know, Lyle and I... Good place for it as you're going into the basement where nobody is. Right. And, and for years and years, we would drop Abby off, and then Lyle school started a little later, and we'd have breakfast in the cafeteria. So I passed that sign hundreds of times. You touch it like the Notre Dame baseball exactly. football With my forehead, did. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think for a long time, that sign got the better of me in a way that this book helped me kind of pull out of, which is, Yes, character is what you do when no one is watching, but there are also reasonable limits to it, right? So, right. like, yes, but if occasionally I throw the mustard container in the regular trash because I don't feel like washing it out, that's okay, right? right? Um, so, you know, or, or I'll give you a much more, a much more tangible example. For a long time, I had a really hard time firing people. Um, if someone was, you know, for cause, fine, no problem. If someone was, you know, did something terrible, but if someone was just like. A nice person worked hard, just not quite capable enough to keep up here. And I would say the pace here is, is fast, right? right? So not easy to. Um, 
for years and years, I would think, well, you know, I know what this person makes. It's a lot less than what I make. They've got a family. They have this. They have that. Yes, they're not that competent, but they're nice. They're trying their best. I can withstand the loss because eventually we'll lose the client or deal or whatever it is better than they can. So therefore, I should incur the cost instead. Right. And then eventually it kind of hit me like, well, what about the other 60-something people who work here? You know, when this person's not doing their job, everyone else has to scramble to compensate. And when we lose clients, yes, I make less money, but the bonus pool also gets smaller. Right. And on the fund, we have outside investors, and they're putting their trust in me to run this place the best you I possibly can. to be to, to them, fiduciary right. duty. And so I, I think what I found helpful about the Aristotelian – how do you pronounce that? Aristotelian uh, – I don't know. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> approach is – Sounds right. Balance, right? Like in the sense of you can't – like what he did a good job was was also saying like if you are some sort of martyr and you're just sort of constantly sacrificing yourself because you think it makes you so pious and great, like that's just as bad or almost right, as right. bad. Right, right. No, and even – so I appreciate so that. There's that good qualities that have bad sides and bad qualities that have good sides. So, it, right. you know, he talks about the use of anger. Um, even the use of like like greed in a sense too. Yeah, or like when he got into the whole thing on existentialism and, and Sartre and Camus, you know, to me the point was don't take yourself too seriously, right? Like, do I do I agree with the existentialists? No, I think I would have a hard time living that way. But is there a certain truth to the fact that a lot of life is just absurd? Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Random and dark. Yeah, and I think <laughs> not taking, you know, and by the way, the people who tend to be that I like the least on either side of the political spectrum are the most self-righteous, not funny, take themselves too seriously, hectoring types of people. Okay, I'm going to recommend a book to you while I'm thinking of it because <clears throat> it's sort of about someone doing something that they don't, that, that is unacknowledged, that they, like they, they do. I'm not going to explain it very well, but it's a book called Mouth to Mouth by Antoine Wilson. Have you heard about this? No. It's a very short novel. Um, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a thriller really. Um, I like thrillers. And I mean, not a not a thriller like Jason Bourne, like running through the streets of Paris, but like a a very high plot momentum story that starts with a man encountering a drowning person on the beach. And does or and does not. No one else is around. Um, saves the per- try to save the person or not. Well, if they don't try to save the person, that would probably have a, a tougher time telling a good story out of that. So, well, unless keep, you try not to, and then it's all the moral guilt that you feel. Oh, yeah. Well, that would be a different you know, kind of like book. Crime that, and, it's like crime and punishment. Right. That yeah, that would be a sort of existential book. Yeah. Um, no, he does save the person. Um, and and, and then the person turns out to be like Hitler or something terrible. And they, you, well, not not you know. I mean, in an interesting way, there there is there is there is a yeah sort of a, uh, a reconsideration of whether it was the right thing to do. Well, that's where the Kantian approach would actually make sense, which is the the utilitarian kind of consequentialist mindset would say, you saved Hitler, you should have let him die, right? The Kantian would say that you have no way to know who that person was in the water. The right thing to do is to try to save another human life. And if that's what it turned out to be, so be it. But let me make one last point about the well, share wait, book. No, I want to. Yeah. I want you. You can make one last point. But first, yeah. this is you have to read this book for next week. Just okay. FYI, I know you have a big week coming up. It's it's yeah, it's well, Lyle's bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah yeah. It's a very short book, though. You probably read it like at lunch. Okay. So, anyway, go ahead. Um, what, was your, what was your last point? Peter Singer, who gets talked to. Have you read anything by him? No, I've read the essays and stuff, and he's referred to in he's the book. He's referred in to in the book. book. Yeah. He's this philosopher, I think from Princeton or something like that, and. I can't stand that guy. I read one of his books and it pissed me off so much because it was this moral absolutism where, like, for example, he used example, Singer wrote up Bill Gates and Gates right. announced at one point, I'm giving $30 billion to right. charity. And Singer Not said, enough, Peter well, Singer you said. still have $50 billion more, therefore right. you are evil, right? You are bad. You should be giving $79.99 billion or whatever it is. Right. Um, 
And I found Singer to be such a self-righteous, like, unsympathetic guy who, by the way, imposed his own values on everyone else because we said in the book that I read was like, well, animal right. we all have to first look out for animal rights. And it's like, by the way, I have a dog. We're getting a cat. I really like animals. <laughs> I kind of am wondering you're a about meat eater. You're a meat yeah, eater. but I, I kind of struggle with it a little bit. But nonetheless, like that's one point of view. Right. But like, what? Because it's your point of view. We all have to adhere to this fucking thing. Right. So there are people to me that claim moral superiority, whether it's in kind of philosophy or academia or politics or everything else. And the reality is, they're using that as cover for just what they want and what's best for them. And I have to say, of, of all the people encountered in that book, the one that I think I dislike the most is Peter Singer. Well, and I think uh, you get you get it, one of the real virtues of the book, too, is that it's really not about moral superiority involved. In fact, it's it's about sort of moral humility is what the, the theme of the book is, I'd say. Yeah. And, and that is and that is appealing. And, and you know, my, my view would be that this would have been an, an excellent magazine article. I'm not sure I would um, hang in for the whole 200 pages unless I was— But it was a fast read. It was. It, it, it just got worse, though. Like, it's true. You, I was going to say, you could read, because sort of this morning to prepare for this podcast, uh-huh. I went through and highlighted stuff in the book. And what I noticed was I highlighted a ton of stuff in the first half of the book yeah. and very little in the second yeah. half. So you could probably read the first part or two or whatever it is, and then you, you'd get the point. Um, I think we could just leave it there. We don't need, unless, is there something Leon you want to talk about the Leon Cooperman story? Well, I, I, it, I think it, talk about it for a second just because I think our listeners would enjoy reading it. Well, I mean, one of the great things, you know, the guy who wrote that, by the way, Eli Saslow, who's like one of the best journalists working in America for the Washington Post, his brother used to teach at, uh, at our kid's school. A friend? Yeah. Are we not supposed to say the name of our kid's school? In the, in the I don't area? know. It's up to you. Uh, whatever. <laughs> um, uh, I didn't know that. Anyway, Eli wrote this pretty, pretty interesting piece about a, a hedge fund manager named Leon Cooperman, who's worth a couple billion dollars and has a very, uh, you know, he, he's, he's a very hardworking guy, even late into his life. He... It does not spend lavishly on himself. He gives a ton to charity, and he really spends a lot of time thinking about what the right thing to do with his money and, and what the best way to sort of use it for the, you know, for the betterment of, of society. And it, it's a very it's a very good story. It was over the weekend or maybe last week sometime in the Washington Post. Yeah, I mean, I, there was a few things about it that appealed to me, although there were plenty of moral contradictions because the Krupman is a human being, right? right. And Eli Saslow, is that his name? Yes. Is also a human being, which means he and his editor and whatever else are also using, you know, kind of their own moral and philosophical structure to sort of shape the story, right? right? But ultimately, one of the things I liked about it is, A, it kind of pokes some holes in this in this sort of progressive notion that everyone who makes a lot of money is inherently evil, because Leon Cooperman grew up super poor in the Bronx, hungry, you know, didn't go to college, didn't have any kind of education, was a PhD, was poor, hungry, and desperate, or something like <laughs> right, that. Right. Was, um, and yet managed through a lot of hard work and a lot of talent um, to ultimately become an incredibly successful person. So there's, there's no reason to vilify Leon Cooperman, n- number one. Number two is he's not all good or all bad, right? So you and I before the podcast were talking about the fact that he they makes a point of saying in the, art, in the article he spends 183 nights a year in Florida because that makes him an official Florida resident for tax purposes and therefore doesn't pay state income tax. And you said, well, if you're so moral and so great – why wouldn't you stay in New York or New Jersey or whatever it is and pay the taxes to help people? And, you know, it's a good question, right? So there's one argument to say just because he wants the money for himself and he's, you know, greedy or whatever it is. The other would be to say you could look at this like New York City and say we spend more money per kid on public schools than almost anyone in the country. We have worse outcomes than almost anyone in the country. And the vast majority – you could argue the vast majority of state taxes are just political payoffs to different groups to try to get votes in elections, right? And if that's the case, you would – Cooper could say, 
I'd rather donate this money to charter schools or whatever it is. I, and I, that I both, would be I both a more agree with that, but I also I, I, I think the other point is though, isn't it? I mean, he is in fact like a New Jersey. Re- I think he's a New Jersey resident. Like, like, isn't just his, his civic responsibility from all the places he grew up in to pay the same taxes that other people in New Jersey pay? Not like, if he doesn't live in New Jersey. Well, if he spends one hundred and eighty. But what if he said, year. okay? But if, if so, so New York State taxes were like nine percent for a guy like Cooperman, ten something like that. Right. Maybe it's a little more. So let let's say Cooperman still makes off of just the interest of investments and compounded everything else, a hundred million dollars a year. Okay. So ten million dollars would go to the state of New Jersey in right. the form of taxes. What if Cooperman said, I'm going to give away that ten million, and I believe that I can do more good with it than the politicians can do with it? Yeah, I guess. It Why just is that seems- wrong? Well, it, it just seems like he's making a, like a kind of decision that's not available to the other citizens of New Jersey and therefore is like it, it feels hubristic to me. But I guess so. You know, but I would also say that my like, guess oh, is so Leon so he, is a lot smarter than 99.9 percent of the people in Trenton. So maybe and by the way, this is also why I like universal basic income, because it, it, it does result in a wealth transfer from those who have to those who don't have. But rather than going through government and seeing half of it siphoned off because of politics, you're just trusting people. Right. And you're putting money in their pockets with the assumption that they will generally do what's best for them right. um, with that money. So I thought, you know, if you believe in UBI, which, which I really do, that's why we ran the end campaign, um, then I think. Cooperman overall to me comes off as a pretty sympathetic figure, even yeah. though he didn't talk about UBI in the yeah, story. Yeah, this is actually not something that comes up in the story. No, I just my brain works in weird ways, and it, it led to that. All right, Bradley, let's leave it there, All right. shall we? Be back on. Now Thursday. remember, you have your assignment for next week. I have Mouth to read to that book. Yeah, Wilson. email, text me the thing, and then um, who do we have for Thursday? We don't know yet. We have a bunch of recorded, but we haven't decided who's coming up Thursday. So that's um, mystery guest. I apologize. We just have like a we have a little bit of a log jam, so we're sorting through the best. Yeah, best we, we released three last week. Yeah, yeah we did. Pump, pumping them out. All right, <laughs> thanks for your bye.